Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. It's back to normal this week, Rebecca. Back to normal in what way? Well, you're taking over the show again. And Toby and Laura, they're back. They're back. So, yes, we thank everybody who played along with our Law & Order episode. Yes, we got so much feedback about that. So many great emails. I think there might be a little something to this Law & Order thing. What do you think? I think so. I think maybe Crime Writers on Law & Order Edition. I think that could happen. Something like that. Well, better title. That's a crappy title. We'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what else happened a whole lot this week? People went to our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. They did. Want to hear a list of a few things they bought? Okay. How about we welcome Toby back with a list of these things that were purchased this week through the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Roll it, Kevin. I don't have a damn roll it button. Give me a button in this place to roll it. Chum's marsupial keychain wallet. Orange. Babyfoot exfoliant foot peel lavender scent 2.4 fluid ounces 70 milliliters pack of two crucial 8 gigabyte single DDR3 1600 MT slash S PC3 12800 CL11 unbuffered ECC UDIMM 240 pin server memory CT102472 BA160B La Isla Women's Full Coverage No Poke Wire Non Padded Racerback Front Closure Bra Magnenta. Oh, Jesus. That was a catastrophe. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about the judicial breakdown on the podcast Breakdown. We'll check in with one of our listeners who just happens to be a super expert in a whole lot of the things that we cover. And finally, we'll be discussing the differences between crime shows produced across the pond and the media around crime we produce here in the old U.S. of A. 
day. So joining me now to tackle those tasks is my true crime co-author and real life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I really liked it better when I was in charge. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator and licensed private investigator and recent vacation returnee, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I was on a colonial excursion. It was very (laughs) colonial. What does that mean? You were like on the Mayflower? No, I wasn't on the Mayflower. I was on one of the other ships that came over to Jamestown even before the Mayflower. Really? On purpose? Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Did they serve you beer instead of water? Um, No, but I did go to three themed colonial restaurants where they did serve wine in these huge glasses, which was very exciting. Did you get scurvy? I didn't get any scurvy. I think I had enough wine to fend off the scurvy. Well, and also joining with us is our favorite guy to go to when you want just a little bit of the wind knocked out of your sails. Welcome back, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. Hey, I thought you were going to just stop when you said our favorite guy. (laughs) (laughs) Had to qualify it. Well, you just kept on going. Yeah, I did keep on going. I'm sorry about that. You know, you weren't here for a week and we missed you both very much, but we are both very glad that you are back. Speak for yourself. (laughs) All right. We're going to cut that part out because that was mean. I think people know that he's kidding. Okay, good. All right. So big news yesterday. There was a big breakdown on the podcast Breakdown, an unexpected twist in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's podcast about the Justin Ross Harris case. Kevin, do you want to like tell us what happened there? Yeah. Well, as you know, if you've been following the podcast that right now they are in jury selection for the Harris trial. This is the guy who was accused of leaving his son to die in the back of his hot car while he was distracted, sexting and doing other things. And there's the allegation that he wanted to be childless and left his son alone to die in the car on purpose. Now, um, the defense made a motion three weeks into jury selection saying that they didn't think Harris could get a fair trial based on among other things, the intense media coverage, including breakdown, that's looking you know, into all sort of the aspects of the case, the legal system surrounding everything from how jurors are selected in this county to psychologists looking at the phenomenon of leaving children in cars. So, you know, very unexpectedly, the judge granted a motion to change venues to someplace else in the state of Georgia. Now, Laura, these kind of motions get made all the time. You worked on cases that went to trial. Have you ever seen a change of venue get granted before? No. And I worked on a high profile case where they tried to get a change of venue and it wasn't even close to happening. So I was in Williamsburg last week, which in Virginia also happens to be the home of the National Center for State Courts. And according to them, trial relocations like this are so rare, they don't even keep statistics. Wow. Now, sometimes I actually think that there is a good case for a trial relocation. A recent example of that that we talked about a lot in this house was the trial of the Boston Marathon bomber, Jokar Sarnayev. And if you live in New England, you know that everybody knew about that case, obviously, and had an opinion about that case. Kevin, what did you think when you heard that this trial got relocated? I was gobsmacked because I've never heard of any of those motions being granted. I can't think of a trial that they changed the venue on. You know, if anyone I ever thought it would be, I thought it would be the Boston Marathon bomber, that they would move it to Springfield, Massachusetts, which is about two hours down the Mass Turnpike. But in the other sense, I'm not surprised at the rationale, because if you've been listening to Breakdown and you listen to the voir dire of the jurors, 
it seems very unlikely that there was going to be a jury that would be impartial. Now, Toby, I'd love your take on that, because I know that you were listening to Breakdown and you heard Bill Rankin's analysis of not only the venue, you know, the actual county where the trial was going to be held, but the way the people think there, the way that other you know trials have gone. And then we also heard that voir dire. Do you think that Harris was going to get an impartial jury in that county and get a fair trial in that county? You know, I think he makes a pretty strong case that that's like a quote unquote law and order county where the prosecutors are confident they're going to get convictions in cases. So I think it would have been a tough place for the defendant. You know, just the fact that they were saying and I can't remember exactly who said it in the in the podcast, but that there wasn't one person who seemed predisposed to find him not guilty, that everybody who expressed an opinion expressed that they were guilty. You know, it's interesting you bring up the Boston Marathon bomber. My thought about the reason why that wouldn't have gotten changed, whereas this one would have, is that I think the Boston Marathon bomber, it was really a crime against a community. And I think moving it away from that community probably would have been inappropriate. It would have been they wouldn't have been able to find justice from within the community that was harmed. Whereas in this case, it's either an incredibly tragic accident or an incredibly cruel murder. But I'm not sure that the community has been harmed by this. So moving it to a different location, I don't think really undermines justice at all. And it probably gives him a better chance of having people sort of approach the case without very strong feelings because it's the kind of case that's going to bring out very strong feelings. Now, see, Toby, I actually disagree with you. I think that if somebody commits a crime against a community, that community is the wrong place to have that trial. I mean, you wouldn't, for example, have the family members of a victim on the jury of the person who, you know... Hold it in their living room. Exactly. What do you think about that idea, Kevin? Well, I think, I understand what Toby's saying, but, you know, all crimes are actually against the community, the people. It's the state of versus. It's the people versus. So a crime against one person is a crime against all of us. That's why the prosecution represents all of us. And Boston, by the way, made a choice to make that crime against the community. I mean, that was the messaging around that crime was very much about Boston. I mean, we had, like, three people who died, lots of people injured, but immediately it was the Boston. I mean, Boston has sort of a spirit of owning things that happen in that city, making making it their thing. I think even more so than other cities where things happen. But well, like, you know, New York, Oklahoma City. I mean, there's sure. a very, I mean, but you're right. There was, you know, in the wake of that, the whole Boston strong thing. And it that was, was a like, slogan around. That was that, a yeah. slogan. And it was like, if even if you lived in Revere and you never ran a mile in your life, you took it very personally. It does speak to a larger issue that you don't have to have a jury made up of people that know nothing about the case. You have to have a jury of people who are willing to set aside any knowledge that they may have and listen impartially. You can sit through a lot of jury trials and and through jury selection and get a sense like, ah, this one's better than average, this one's worse than average. This one, just from the reporting that we we got from Breakdown, just seemed like there was just no way possible they're going to start with a jury that is, uh, you know, going to listen without prejudice. I mean, that was, you know, the the setup for, I think, the final two episodes leading up to the trial is that you can win it or lose it right here. And it seemed like they're going to lose it. Now, Laura, have you ever had a, a case 
case where jury selection was just really tough and you just felt like, you know, this is not going to go the defense's way because people were getting in that you felt were not going to be good jurors and you just weren't feeling good about it on the voir dire side? Not so much. I mean, most of the cases, like I said, I worked on a few high profile cases, but most of the cases I was on were smaller cases. So it wouldn't have been something where the jury was as critical as a case like this. Now, you know, let's talk about the media for a second. The cases that you worked on that were high profile, do they have a lot of media coverage? Yes. Do you feel like the media coverage does make a difference in a defendant's ability to receive a fair trial? Well, you know, I think it depends. Like Kevin was saying, it, it kind of depends on the mindset of the juror because there's certain cases that everybody is going to know something about because they have been in the media. But in this case, in Breakdown, it was pretty obvious that it didn't matter how much media coverage there had been. And there was a lot. These people already had such preconceived ideas. And it was such a horrible case that there was no way that they were going to be impartial, no matter what they did or didn't know about the case, just because of the nature of the case. Right, right. It's such a unique crime, too, in the sense yeah. that, you know, if it were a shooting or a stabbing or something like that, people would kind of, I don't want to be blasé about it, but they they know what they're getting into. And you could probably say, oh, well, oh, he killed his wife or he killed whomever or she killed you know, I think it's kind of the thing that you might expect to be confronted with if you're called for jury duty. This is such an unusual case, whereas, you know, there are questions as to whether or not he intended to do this. And even if he didn't intend to do this, what is his criminal liability? Because it's a, you know, a crime against a child. It just inflames so many more passions than even your, I hate to put it this way, your run-of-the-mill homicide, that it just seemed that you know, people were coming in just you know, ready to hang them. There have been cases that I've worked on where we knew there was going to be a lot of publicity. And so part of my job as an investigator was to set up a Google alert or whatever news alert that I was going to use and track and compile copies of all media coverage of a case and also including comments. You know, we have some newspapers where there's like open comment sections and people can go in. And that's something that's also as you're looking through the people that are on the potential juror list to find out if there are people that were commenting on these stories that are then in the jury pool. Huh. That's really interesting. Toby, yeah. what did you think of the judge's statement about the media coverage of the case? She mentioned breakdown specifically, which I thought was very interesting. And she talked about, you know, the call-in talk show that had a two-hour open line talk show about the case. And then she also said, of course, it's the media's right to cover this if they think that it's an important story. But dot, dot, dot. What did you think of that section where we heard the judge making that statement? And did she mean it when she said it's the media's right? Or was she in some way maybe blaming the media? Or was she just trying to get out of it? Because there was a lot of heat on her in the moment. I don't know. I was sort of stuck in the middle of wondering what she was thinking there. Well, I, I think that's it's a realistic stance to take, which is that the local public is already kind of inflamed on this. I think I kind of respect it because I think and we've seen this in the things that we've watched to do this podcast. But there's quite often if it plays to the advantage of the prosecution, you just kind of go with it. So that if there was a situation in which the jury pool was going to be slanted towards the prosecution, that the temptation might be to just let it ride. And the fact that she was able to kind of make a determination in a determination, which I think would be fairly unpopular in that county. And I don't know whether judges are elected in Georgia, 
I'm not yep. sure. I'm no, no, I don't know. But you know, I, I found myself thinking, and Kevin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. That there's a lot more attention on what's happening in the courtroom now. That we have this podcast that has been at one point, I think it was number five on the overall iTunes charts. I mean, there's probably a couple million people at least who have heard this case, part of this story. And do you think there could be incentive there just to say, you know what, we don't want this playing out this publicly in this courtroom? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't think that the issue in the real world, the real factual issue, the reason why there is a problem with this jury, I don't think has anything to do with the media coverage today. I think it was all the media coverage in the past and that just sort of the flavor of the community is such that they are in the mood for retribution. Now, look, Justin Ross Harris is not a likable person. He has a lot of other problems going on. So even if he was completely unaware that his child was in the backseat and is not criminally responsible for his death, there's a whole lot of other shit on this guy. And it makes it very easy to not like him and want to throw the book at him for the death of his son. So that is sort of like the gasoline on this fire. Breakdown's doing a great job. I mean, I think they're, I haven't obviously looked at all the media coverage, but, you know, as opposed to just another one minute and 30 second package on the local TV news, I mean, Breakdown is going very deep into not just all of the facts surrounding the case and picking out, you know, long versions of these sound bites so that you can really digest them, but looking at some of the other bigger societal issues, the psychological issues involved with that. So to not just take it at face value that it's impossible to forget about your child in the car because there was a public awareness campaign at the time because so many people had done that. Well, I want to ask that question. I mean, let's not, we haven't dug into this case at all. Toby, do you think that it's possible to have your baby be in the backseat of the car and forget your baby's there? I mean, I'm not asking you to speculate on whether or not Justin Harris knew, but do you think that it's possible just to forget? Could you imagine that happening to you? That's two different questions. (laughs) I can't imagine it happening to me, but I'll tell you why I think it could happen, which is, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote an article in The New Yorker a number of years ago about car accidents. And one of the things that he talked about was about how you intake so much stimulus just every second of the day that your brain makes shortcuts on things and especially things that you do routinely. So if you take the same route to work all the time, your brain is focusing on certain things and ignoring other things that it considers unimportant or superfluous. He was talking about how, you know, sometimes people will be like turning in and they'll hit a pedestrian and they'll say, oh, I didn't even see him. And that's accurate because basically what your brain is doing is it's filling in that spot without you actually looking at it and Mm -hmm. taking it in. So I could see where somebody, if the routine is not to have your kid in the car with you, especially if he's distracted because he's sexting with teenagers, that your brain may just fill in the gaps for you and you walk away and it doesn't occur to you until later. That, that's the only way I can see it happening is that, is that kind of thing. My kids were loud enough that there was no way. <laughs> well, I, I think all the time about the times that I've, you know, I have the kind of drive to work where like I, I hit like a split in the highway and I always go left. But there have been times where I'm supposed to go right to go to a meeting or whatever. And I go left anyway. 
because it's just the way that I always go. And, you know, you don't realize it until you're where you're supposed to be. And I, I know that Bill Rankin talked about that and the brain science behind it on the show. And, you know, obviously it's not the same as leaving a kid in the car, but there is a thing around routine that makes me believe that it is possible that some people do this by accident. But here's the rub in this case. And Kevin, you talked about this, about what kind of person Justin Ross Harris is. It makes me think, and, and Laura, I want to ask you about this. It makes me think about the prosecution in the staircase. You remember how the prosecution made hay with Michael Peterson's, you know, how they characterized it as bad behavior because he was bisexual, because he had porn on his computer. This filth. Yeah, this, this filth is yeah, what the, they exactly. said. Yeah. And, and because, you know, he had had, you remember he had had that um, brief communication with the prostitute who by who by the way he told how much he loved his wife too which was yeah. like a whole other twist Laura how much do you think it does change a case when there are character things you can bring into it do you think that if Justin Ross Harris was like a super duper guy that, that we'd even be hearing about this trial at all Probably not. But again, you have to remember, not all that stuff is going to come in. But they talked about this in the podcast about how that's why they have the dual theories of prosecution here. The two charges, they're going to be able to bring it in under the malice charge because they're going to say it's going towards his intent. I mean, I've had lots of cases where there's been people where you've had horrible bad facts and the person is, you know, you, you look at that and you think this is awful if the jury finds out about this. But a lot of times motions are filed to keep that information out because it is going to prejudice the jury in the case if it's not directly relevant to proving one of the charges. But in this case, this guy just has so many issues. It's it's hard not to judge him when you hear all the information about him. It's, it's really hard to step back and try to be more objective. Laura, I'm curious to know, I know that you only started listening to the podcast because we sort of twisted your arm into it. I know the, the case has sort of some rough subject matter to it. I'm curious to know what you think of Bill Rankin's telling of the story. You know, he's a newspaper reporter. He has a background, you know, not dissimilar from yours in that way. He admits that he's like not a radio guy. He has a very sort of easygoing, non-narrative style of narration where he just sort of is, you know, kind of telling you what's going on and and making fun of the way that voir dire is pronounced there in the South. What, <laughs> what do you think of the podcast, what we're learning about the law in Georgia, what we're hearing about this trial? I'm curious to know your thoughts overall. Yeah. So this like this was a hard one for me to start. When I was a defense investigator, the cases that I always had the hardest time with were cases involving crimes against children. And a lot of times I would actually say, I, I can't work on this case. You know, once you have a child, your perspective definitely changes. And so it was hard for me to start listening to this. But I really like his delivery. He's very easy to listen to. And he, you know, inserts little bits of humor along the way. Like he he made a funny little sentence inserted about the free Wi-Fi at the court, you know, or something last week. And he's, yeah, what is he's this sequestered juror going to do with Wi-Fi? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you can't, know. You can't update can... your Facebook status if, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I thought that was funny. But he also, I noticed, has tried to do, you know, in one of the earlier episodes, some similar sort of signposting like serial where he's like timing how long it took on the drive. And he's like, remember these later. They're going to be important. And so I thought it was interesting. I almost sort of could see where he was taking some of the narrative techniques that were so effective in serial and sort of applying them to his own storytelling. But I have to say this case was a case I really didn't want to learn anything about. But as I listen to the way that he has sort of introduced information on both sides and experts, you know, I have come around. Toby, what about you? Now, we've heard now that this trial, we don't know when it's going to start again. It could be months and months and months. And you've been listening to this podcast. Are you sad that we're not going to get any updates on this case and from this podcast, maybe for months? Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's I guess that's just kind of life. I really like the podcast. 
I think of all the sort of post-serial true crime podcasts, I think this is the strongest one. And I think part of it's the choice of the case. And I think part of it is he's done a very good job of approaching the case from a bunch of different angles, coming off as seeming pretty impartial. So I'll be less being sad that I'm not going to hear about it and more looking forward to when it does come back. I'm looking forward to when it comes back, too. I respect Bill Rankin's work a lot. I think that we're learning a lot about journalism at the same time we're learning about the court system. Kevin, what do you think? You disappointed? Are you looking forward to this podcast coming back? I I actually, yeah, I actually am kind of a little disappointed uh, in the sense that I was really enjoying it and looking forward to hearing more about uh, how the case was going to go. And, you know, I thought this was like a really good opportunity for a podcast to be a little different, where it's a little more like the news, a weekly news roundup and see, can you make that different than what you might get on the television or on a radio roundup, can you do it different narratively? I really just want the best for that podcast. Right, right. Just like if you have a dog, you only want the best for them because (laughs) pups need a lot of exercise (laughs) and a chance to socialize with other dogs. And the perfect place for that is Camp Bow Wow. We love Camp Bow Wow, but just stop for a second. Guys, what do you think? What do you think of Kevin's transition into this ad? talking about this podcast, about this very serious legal case, and now we're talking about a uh, daycare slash camp situation for dogs. Laura, what do you think? That was pretty smooth, Kevin. How long did it take you to plan that? It was all week. <laughs> all week. Okay. <laughs> what do you think, Toby? The improvement each week is stunning. I'd give it a 9-6. All right. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Well, you know, I can't bow well gets a 10 because all of its locations, they have doggy daycare boarding and even more for our furry kids, shall we call them? They're my kids. Yeah. For sure. Well, dogs get to play with their four-legged friends under the care of a camp counselor and many camp counselors and they are certified in a pet first aid and cpr so no worries and the best part is when you pick them up after a day at camp they're so pooped they'll just snooze the night away so trust me your dog will love camp bow wow and you'll love picking up a tired and thoroughly happy dog so check them out at campbowwow.com crime and get your dog's first day for free. That's a deal, huh? CampBowWow.com slash crime. And if you think you might like to own a Camp Bow Wow, like Rebecca does. <laughs> I don't want to own one. I just want someone to own one near our house. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let our friends and neighbors know that they can learn more about franchise opportunities at CampBowWowFranchise.com. Kevin, I'm not sure how to help you transition smoothly into the next sponsor, but is there perhaps another sponsor that we need to talk about? Yeah, we do. And I actually really like these guys. These are our new uh, sponsor for our podcast. New it's, sponsor? It's Weebly. Nice. All of you have got great ideas. You know, that that one that you've been sitting on, the one that everybody agrees is amazing, this new business, maybe it's podcasting, maybe you're going to make jewelry save the world well you need to get a professional quality website blog or online store but how do you do that you want to do that easily and you want to do that in a way that is not going to break the bank and the best way is to use weebly now i use weebly at work my work website uses the weebly content management system your day job website my day job website (laughs) the one that actually pays me to do stuff and it's so easy to use it's uh it gives you a nice responsive website uh it looks good on desktop and on mobile you know it's really for people that want to be their own boss start a business 
but uh, don't want to have to spend a lot of money on a web designer or want to know how to code themselves. So I really like the way it works. There's a lot of uh, drop and drag stuff. And one of the really cool things that they have now that nobody else has is you can use their app and you can update your website and do all your changes on the back end of your website through your phone. That's so if cool. you're on the go and you're like, okay, it's time to change this e-commerce, so I'm going to put a deal on you know half off of breakdown t-shirts <laughs> we got to get on that right now you could do that so like i said i use weebly it's easy to use and you'll like the way that your websites look so creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with weebly get started today for free at weebly.com slash crime writers that's w-e-e-b-l-y dot com slash crime writers weebly.com slash crime writers. Kevin, that was extremely smooth. It was very professional. Thank you. Well, I like both of those sponsors. Toby, don't you feel like we're like really harnessing Kevin's uh, former broadcasting career for good here when we have him raise ass for us? It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's really classes up our podcast. All right. So I would like to transition now from Kevin's very professional, very excellent reading of our ads and go to our inbox, our voice memo inbox. Uh, We get voice memo sent to us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. And we have a new listener voice memo this week, and it's pretty epic. I want to play it for you guys right now. You guys ready? Brace yourselves for this. Hi, Crime Writers On. It's Emma here from Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) Firstly, I just want to say I love your show. I think it's hilarious and interesting. A couple of things. Just so you know, in honour of your last episode, I am recording this message while I'm having a shower in true law and order fashion. Ding, ding. Secondly, in the show before the last one, I just wanted to correct a couple of your pronunciations or colloquialisms. When referring to Johnny Depp's dogs, Barnaby Joyce actually used the phrase, go off like a frog in a sock. Now that basically means go nuts as a frog would if you put it in a sock. And also the little cute furry creatures you were referring to are pronounced quackers. It's quite interesting, actually, because I sometimes have difficulty understanding what you say due to your accents. Like, is it plated or plate it? Anyway, whatever it is, I'm sure it's delicious. Cue segue for Kevin. Uh, I think that's all I had to say. Keep doing what you're doing. Love it. And I will look forward to the next episode, as I always do. See you later. Toby, how impressed are you by the high production value of that voice memo? Uh, very impressed. Laura, how impressed are you by the high production value of that voice memo? I loved it. At first, I was like, is there a monsoon in Australia? Are those birds? What's happening? It was. I, I, I felt like I was there with her. Well, I would like to give kudos to Emma for her very high production value in the voice memo. We've never gotten anything quite like that before. You know what else is great about Emma? What's that? Checking out her, her email credentials. She's got a PhD. I know. Our listeners are so much smarter than we are. This is really intimidating how many smart people are listening to this podcast. And as four a- dopes just talking about... <laughs> Whatever comes out of their ass, right? We know what our listeners are really smart. They're always happy to to very kindly point out our many, many factual errors in this podcast. We do have actually a couple of corrections from last week. I just want to mention that whole trial part 54 in Law and Order I mentioned um, that actually refers to the courtroom the number. Court. That's what I thought. I didn't want to because you were so you well, were so convincing. I had a Wyrick's backup and he's a prosecutor. And so I felt pretty good about it. But by the way, I do stand by. They do play with time because it has taken a while for those cases to go to trial 
and those trials do last a long time. So I still stand by that. Yeah, but we could. I made a mistake, too. You did make a big mistake, yeah, too. What was your mistake, Kevin? Well, I thought that the precinct on NYPD Blue was also the 2-7. It's actually the 15th precinct in NYPD Blue, and it's the 27th for Law & Order. That's right. And Lauren, Toby. God, I know. I know. Damn it. Don't you feel lucky, Toby, that you weren't here last week to also make a mistake that could get corrected by a PhD? Yeah, if I was there, there would have been more discipline. <laughs> <laughs> It is true, though, that with our international audience, things do get lost in translation. There are cultural differences. They shade the way that we view crime and even crime media across the world. And speaking of listeners who are brilliant and have PhDs, we recently heard from another overseas listener on Twitter. I, she actually recommended our podcast to a bunch of other people on Twitter. And I saw that tweet and I looked at her bio. And as it turns out, she is an expert on a whole lot of the things that we talk about on this show. So I connected with her after seeing her bio. I sent her a tweet. I ended up emailing with her, and I, we had a fascinating little exchange, and then I asked if I could Skype with her. So I'm just going to let her introduce herself, and then we can talk about it afterwards. So just listen to this, guys. My name is Dr Elizabeth Yardley and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminology at Birmingham City University in the UK and essentially I'm interested in crime media and culture and particularly in terms of homicide and for, for several years I've been teaching a module called Crime Media Culture to my undergraduate students. It's very interesting and we actually first well, we haven't met because obviously you're in the UK, but we actually first interacted because you tweeted about our podcast. Is that right? Yes, I did. Yeah, it's exactly the kind of thing that I'd like my students to listen to who are going to be studying on the module uh, next year. Because I think the, the way that you discuss contemporary cases and, and crime drama and, and all of the, the crime podcasts and that kind of thing really help bring it together and make it quite interesting. Because sometimes when I'm working with my students and we're just looking at, at stuff in textbooks, and academic research, it can be a bit flat and a bit boring, but I really like the podcast because it brings it all to life a little bit. Now, one of the things that I was most interested to see is that in a serial uh, case, in particular the serial season one case, mm -hmm. you actually co-authored a study on the serial subreddit. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we'd all got really interested in serial, myself and a couple of colleagues, and we were listening to it regularly. And we started having a, a bit of a, a look around online to see who was talking about it, what they were saying about it, that kind of thing. And we came across the serial subreddit. And it soon became quite clear to us that it wasn't just, you know, fans of, of the podcast who were listening, who were, were talking about the case on there, but it was also people who appeared to be personally affected by uh, that particular homicide. And we thought that that was a really interesting thing because in the past, there's, there's been quite a kind of a considerable barrier between people personally affected by homicide and, and media. But with social media, I think some of those barriers are breaking down and the people who we refer to as secondary victims, so the relatives and the, the friends of offenders and, and victims of homicide are kind of popping up in these online spaces. And we thought it'd be quite interesting to have a look at, well, what are they saying? How are they interacting with others? And, and 
that sort of thing, really. It is a very different environment. And one of the things that you've also looked at, and I would love to hear a little bit about your work in, is the way that perpetrators of crime, homicide in particular, leverage mm. uh, new media and social media. Can you tell us about your work in that area? Yeah, well, I first started to get interested in this when I was looking at representations of, of homicide in media. So looking at things like what makes a homicide newsworthy, what homicides get covered, which ones don't, and the, the concept of the ideal victim. So the idea that there are some victims of homicide who are seen as, as much more kind of deserving of victim status than, than others. And I thought we spend so much time looking at the way that media represents homicide, but we don't really look very hard at what homicide perpetrators are doing with media. And I think in an era of, of social media and, and network media where it's quite easy to produce your own content and put it out there, we needed to start looking at that. And we come across references to this term Facebook murder in the news media. And we decided, well, is there anything actually in that that we need to look at? Is that actually a valid thing that's happening? So we basically researched cases where um, a homicide had happened and it had been reported that Facebook had been involved you know, to some degree. So the perpetrator to use Facebook to some extent. And it was really interesting. We came across quite different uses of Facebook by homicide perpetrators. So the most common one was the reactor. So these were people who basically saw something that someone else had posted on social media and reacted to it by attacking that person offline. And, and these were people that were already known to one another. Most often it was intimate partner relationships that had broken down. One of them had updated their Facebook status to single or started posting things about a new relationship that they were in. Uh, another one was um, antagonist. So these, it was often cases of young men who'd had a kind of um, a hostile back and forth on Facebook and it had ended up in a, a face-to-face confrontation. And they were, were quite often gang-related. And then we came across some some other kind of not so common uses. So we did come across the odd predator who was basically using Facebook to, to lure victims. They were setting up a profile purporting to be somebody that, that they weren't and they were using that to basically lure their victim. And then we came, came across um, basically people who were pretending to be somebody they weren't but in a slightly different way. So they, they might have posted in the name of the victim on social media. So they had murdered their victim. They'd taken over the victim's social media profile and were updating it and posting on it to basically give the impression that the victim was still alive. But I think one of the most kind of disturbing ones that I came across were the informers. So these were people who were going on Facebook and basically saying either that they were about to kill somebody, that they just killed somebody, or both. They were basically uh, kind of updating their Facebook status as to what they'd done, and, and that was pretty horrendous. So... I think as social media is becoming part and parcel of our everyday life, it's becoming part and parcel of crime as well, and particularly violent crime, because criminologists haven't really looked very much at, at that. So we're just kind of in the early stages at the moment of, of looking in, in a bit more detail as to, to what's going on with that and why people are using it in that way. I know that one of the things that criminologists look at are the patterns around perpetrators of crime. And I know that there's been a lot of work around domestic violence and partner mm-hmm. homicide, intimate partner homicide. And I'm wondering if you think that Facebook could at some point become a tool to 
predict a pattern and to intervene, uh, especially in the case of, I think, a, a, an intimate partner, domestic violence situation or partner mm-hmm. homicide. You know, are there patterns that emerge again and again and, and you know, the, the relationship escalating and, and certain patterns of posting and speech on Facebook? Well, this is something that we, we started looking at. I've actually got a PhD student, Maura Kennedy, who is investigating the, the use of, of social media in, in cases of domestic homicide. So she's looking at particular cases where the perpetrator has been you know, stalking the victim using social media. But it also kind of goes beyond that. And we're looking at things like apps on phones. So you know, the Track My iPhone and the Find My Friends app is being used in some pretty horrendous ways in terms of keeping tabs on, on ex-partners and that kind of thing. But I think what we're trying to get to at the moment is it's understanding what it means to particular individuals. So what we're doing when we're posting on social media is the performance of our relationship. And I think for some people, uh, social media becomes so incredibly meaningful and that the audiences for their social media profile and that of their their partner or ex-partner are people around them. So when their ex-partner is posting on Facebook, oh, I've got a new boyfriend or I'm single now, that's really kind of impacting upon the, the kind of masculinity of that ex-partner. And I think there's there's definitely a lot more work that, that we need to do to kind of make sense of, well, who is going to react in a violent way and who isn't? And are the particular patterns and things that, that we can spot? Now, um, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the cultural differences between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the U.K., because I know that you consume mm-hmm. a lot of media. Yeah. Uh, when, when you watch American TV crime dramas or listen to true crime podcasts or, you know, know, sort of fictionalized or real American media around crime. Do you see similar or dissimilar cultural patterns in the things that fascinate Americans versus the things that fascinate people in the UK? Um, I think there's there's actually more similarities than there are differences. And I think that the key point of similarity that I'm seeing at the moment is this interest in the narratives and the kind of complex stories around homicide. So I think we went through a phase when we were quite kind of preoccupied with the whole kind of CSI forensic, the whodunit way of looking at it. But now we're much more interested in the why done it? So looking at series like The Jinx and podcasts like Serial, where we're kind of looking at a story that unfolds over a series of weeks and months, I think people have got a real appetite for that complexity and that ambiguity now. And I think that's that's happening on, on both sides of the Atlantic. One of the things that I notice, and I'm wondering if you can speak to this at all, I think of British crime, I think that there is, you know, a stereotype. I think that some people who haven't watched a lot of British crime media think about, you know, the British as being genteel, you know, they don't have guns, you know, no death penalty. You know, I watched a Law and Order UK once and watching the police run around with no guns. It, it really was to me like, what are you going to do when you catch that guy? Yeah. <laughs> we know that's that's just sort of the American thinking. But I have mm. watched a lot of British true crime and, you know, listened to podcasts and I watched Prime Suspect and I'm reading the books now and Luther and mm. uh, now Hinterland. I think the stories in British crime media, to me, are a lot scarier and a lot darker than what the U.S. audience maybe will tolerate or will enjoy in the mainstream. Do you, do you notice that at all? Um, yeah, I think to a degree. Yeah, I think there is. I think we're, we're, we're kind of coming under the influence now of some of the Scandinavian crime dramas, which are kind of incredibly dark and do tap into to quite a few kind of contemporary cultural anxieties. And we've recently had a, 
a new television series start here in the UK called Marcella, which is a, an English production, but it, it's written by the producer and, and writer of The Bridge, the, the Danish and Swedish crime drama. So that that is really uncovering some, some incredibly dark stuff. Well, what is your favorite crime media? I mean, do you have something that you're really interested in right now or something that you've really enjoyed watching that you think that we should look at that that we may not have seen because we're here in the U.S.? I absolutely loved ITV's Broadchurch. That was an an ITV production, which which was set in a a small town off the the south coast of England. And the the opening scene is um, in the morning, it's on a beach and the body of a, a young boy washes up. And his parents haven't realised that he's gone missing. And the whole series is around, well, who killed him? And that in turn, they, they look at particular suspects. Every week, it kind of focuses on a particular individual. And I think what was quite compelling for me was this idea of that kind of small town and the kind of figures that you find in you know, local communities. And it tapped into some of our anxieties that we've got in this country, especially things like um, child sexual exploitation. We've had quite a lot of scandals recently of historic cases of of sexual abuse and that kind of thing. So I thought that was a really, really well done piece of crime drama. I'd highly recommend that. I'm wondering what you think, you know, TV shows always get wrong about the nature of criminal behavior or, you know, the patterns around crimes Mm. or just the way that crimes happen. Yeah, I think we're always going to have a particular kind of overrepresentation and misrepresentation going on, especially when we look at things like homicide. So we've got that idea of the, the ideal victim. Um, so we tend to find that when we look at crime drama and crime fiction, we see an overrepresentation of, of female victims, of white victims, of, of particular social groups in society. And we also seem to see homicide kind of portrayed in a, a particular way. You know, the opportunistic killer is is always um, something that, that crops up. The, the lack of a relationship between the victim and the killer, whereas actually you know, most homicides happen between people who are already known to one another. So there's lots of, of little things that are inaccurate. But I think there's, there's that balance, especially when we look at crime drama, between accuracy and dramatic effects. So I think that audiences have got a real appetite now for things that are more real, particularly you know, in the aftermath of, of CSI and that kind of forensic realism. They want things that are accurate, but they don't want it so accurate that it becomes, you know, the mundane everyday homicides that, that criminologists often deal with that, that don't make the news. You mean you don't run into sociopaths and genius murderers like we see in every episode of, you know, shows like Luther? You don't run into those all the time? Oh, very rarely. There's one thing that I always kind of say about that, that idea of the the psychopath, the sociopath and, and murderers, that actually most murderers aren't psychopaths and most psychopaths aren't murderers. Um, but it's that overlap in the middle that, that people find so fascinating. And I always joke about this with my husband because he works in finance and I say, actually, you probably work with more psychopaths than I do. <laughs> They're just functional ones. <laughs> I wonder how many. I wonder how many psychopaths are podcast co-hosts. That's something I find myself wondering when I'm stuck in a, a tiny studio with these guys. Thank you so so much. This was fascinating. That's okay. It was great to talk to you. So, Kevin, what did you think of that interview? We covered some pretty serious stuff, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's almost as serious as, like, you know, being at your desk and wanting to get something out, and you realize the post office is closed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I'm so glad that I have stamps.com, so nice. I can spend less time at the post office 
and more time growing my podcasting business. <laughs> because you can use stamps.com and print out real U.S. postage from your computer and your printer. You don't have to go anywhere. You can put it on any letter, any package. Again, I did a couple of books over the weekend, wrapped them up nice, got some labels on it, sent it right out on a Sunday, on a Sunday of all times. And, you know, stamps.com does all the thinking for you because you get a digital scale. It calculates the exact postage that you need, helps decide the best class mail based on your needs, cheaper going media rate for those books and just sending them first class, like half as much. That's what you get when you're an author. And you can join over the 600,000 small businesses that use stamps.com and never go to the post office Again, right now, sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code CRIMEWRITERS for this special offer. You get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That's postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, you go to the microphone that's at the top of the homepage. You click on that and you type in Crime writers. That's stamps.com. Enter crime writers. Way to ruin the flow coming out of that interview, Kevin, but it was pretty good. Well, you could also do international postage with stamps.com. <laughs> There's so many things that you can do with that. It's stamps.com. Did I mention stamps.com? You did. Slash you did. crime writers. All right. Now, Kevin, can I get back to actually talking about that thing we just heard now? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Yardley brought up some very interesting points during our conversation about. Popular crime entertainment in the U.K. versus the U.S. Now, Toby, do you agree with this idea that crime stories made in the U.K. are just like a heck of a lot darker than they are here in the U.S.? You know, I don't know. I It's funny because when I was listening to it, I think I realized that I've watched more British mystery detective types of things than U.S. ones. So the U.S. ones I've checked out are also pretty dark, I think. Like The Wire yeah. is pretty dark. But yeah, I you know, The Fall. I don't know. Did you see The Fall with Gillian Anderson? No, I no. didn't see that one. And Jamie Dornan. Oh, I know who Jamie Dornan is, yeah. So yeah, he's is that a BBC, kid, right? The Fall? Is that a BBC show? Uh, I don't know. I got it on Netflix. But it's Gillian Anderson plays a, a British woman detective. I, you know, it's a little bit... It's kind of like prime suspect meets, you know, some kind of serial killer. Although he's he's not sympathetic because he's a serial killer, but you see him in his domestic life and how he's with his kids and stuff. So it's it's a little more complex than he's your friendly like neighborhood a, serial killer. killer. Yeah, yeah, it's the kind of serial killer you could go and have a beer with. I I don't know. I don't watch much of the more recent things. I did watch the Broadchurch. She mentioned there yep. was a there mm-hmm. was a U.S. version of that which I watched. Grace Point. And that didn't seem very dark. Well, there was the death of a child, though, at the center of it. And, Laura, this is what I'm, I'm thinking about. And this is what I was thinking about when I was speaking with Dr. Yardley. You know, I started watching that show that you recommended on Twitter, Happy Valley, which, by the way, mm-hmm. we just watched one episode. Not a very no happy, happy valley. No, happy there, Depressing yeah. valley. <laughs> Depressing valley. Suicidal I think, valley. Yep, exactly. Super duper dark. Yeah, obviously ironic name. Do you understand what I'm getting at here with the British stuff just being a little bit darker, a little bit gloomier? Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And, I, you know, I really seem to gravitate towards these British shows. I don't know what this says about me, but they are, they're very gritty. And I find them to be more realistic because I feel like usually whoever the detective is, is flawed. It seems more real, but it's also like a lot of these shows, they're set in these like very beautiful locations. And then these horrific crimes are happening in these little rural towns. But it's definitely, I mean, Happy Valley you know, you've got much more graphic descriptions of the crimes that are happening. You know, I don't want to give a total spoiler, but I'll just say in the second season, there's some very graphic and horrific mutilation happening to people that are being killed. 
But it's something like I feel like it's making these people more human. I think in a lot of the U.S. crime shows, some of them are a little more stylized and whoever the lead detective is isn't nearly as flawed as some of these people are. But I think that that's what keeps me going. It's kind of like watching a train wreck. It reminds me of, did anyone read the J.K. Rowling book, The Casual Vacancy? Yes. No. And it was very depressing. And it was Jesus. like, it was like I wanted to kill myself when I was done. It was like the ghetto of England, but it was the same type of thing. It was very grim. Spoiler alert, but it's you're about halfway through. You, you could go one way or the other, and it just gets as freaking depressing as it could possibly get. Well, you know, I think there's a difference between being gritty and being dark and being gloomy and being scary. And I think, you know, I, you're right. The Wire is very gritty. I think that Hinterland is very gloomy, which is, you know, dark in a different way. Happy the, Valley is also very gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, th I think of The Shield, Rescue Me, which isn't really a cop show. But, you know, there's a lot of these that, that are just, you know, edgy, those American shows. But I, one that I always like I really love but surprised me was Luther because I think that that was really scary, scary which is yeah. I did not anticipate. Yeah. From, you, you know, that the kind of crime and, and you see the, the crimes being committed. I mean, they make it really scary when you turn around in an alley and there's somebody wearing like a weird mask. Clown mask. Clown mask. or John, Holding a giant knife. Yeah. I mean, they shot it so that it would be scary as opposed to being very gritty. And, and so, I mean, I think that that's very different. You know, this, like Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, that's very different than, you know, elementary. Mm -hmm. uh, so where do you put like True Detective season one in that scheme? To me, True Detective season one was almost more British in its sensibility. And I'm going to make a case for it right now. Laura sent us, Laura has a tendency for our listeners who don't know this, is that when we sort of talk about what we're going to talk about on the show, she does like a deep dive into like all sorts of research. And then we get like all these great links sent our way. And I was doing some reading today and something really clicked in one of the things that Laura sent our way. Uh, there was a Guardian piece about the way that crime fighters are portrayed in the UK versus the US in sort of mainstream programming and that cops in the UK are portrayed as very normal looking very flawed, but in a different kind of way than in U.S. shows. In the U.S., I think that if you think about shows like Law and & Order and The Wire and The Shield, the protagonist cops and even NYPD Blue, the protagonist cops are very often damaged and have a flaw. Like they're, they're alcoholics. They have like a weakness of some kind that's tangible it's based on something that happened in their past like in their you know they're wounded they sort of have that like very obvious wound in the uk shows the way that they're flawed is much more just like their people they smoke too much they you know drink too much they have just you know crappy tempers. I think about the Elizabeth George novels that I love and uh, Barbara Havers in those novels is just like an unkempt, horrible dresser who hates people. And she's a great detective. And those flaws just play out in slightly different ways. And it feels more grounded in humanity and less like these characters are just put up on a pedestal like they're perfect were it not for this one Achilles heel that they have. I don't know, Laura, what did you think about that entire analysis about why British crime fighters are so much you know, more interesting than American ones. Oh, I totally agree. So the character in Happy Valley uh, is played by Sarah Lancashire, who's like my new favorite British actress. She's been in like the last three shows I've watched on the BBC, The Last Tango in Halifax, The Paradise, and now this. And her detective, Catherine Kaywood, is very real. She's raising her grandson, who is the product of um, her daughter being raped and 
the rape never went to trial and the daughter ended up killing herself. And so she's raising this grandson. Um, By the but way, super see- dark setup, right? Super dark. Oh, it's, <laughs> and, and I'm very distressed because the rapist is this guy who I absolutely loved in that show, Grantchester, uh, James Norton. And now he's like, he plays the best creepy, awful villain character who has no regard for human life, but he's believable in that character. But Sarah Lancashire's character what you see in hers is she she lacks self-control when it comes to this rapist. And there's scenes where she there's a scene where she could have killed him. And so you see this sort of flaw in her that that she's not able to control this part of her. Um, and it's very compelling as the series goes on. But it also makes her more real. She looks like a normal person. She lives in a very normal looking house. And I think it adds more to me. It seems more authentic, but it also makes me more invested in her character. I think there is something, too, to be said about setting. And Laura, you mentioned that these you know gritty, dark things are happening in beautiful, beautiful places. And I think about Luther and I think about Hinterland. And even like you see like poor people portrayed in these shows and like these crimes happening, like, you know, people who are really struggling. And then the camera just pans out from the projects or wherever. And like there's like the gorgeous British Isle landscape. How much does that sense of place play into that when you're watching as an American viewer? Yeah, I think that it's going to be a silly word, but because it's foreign, it gives a, a different sort of take on what can be a conventional story. And uh, that sense of place is something that was used very well in True Detective season one and didn't quite fire in season two. Instead of it just being, you know, New York City all the time. The sense of place can play a a larger role in how we view the action, how we deal with the characters, how we feel about what's happening, you know, the large city versus the small town. You know, the place in Happy Valley is just, it's suburbia. It's Peyton Place because underneath it there's drug use and there's uh, poverty and, well, you know, there's also like kidnapping too. Toby, what do you think of this idea that this sort of scandal, uh, one of the things that Dr. Yardley said was that the scandal that your society is used to very much plays into what you're willing to tolerate in terms of your entertainment. She talked about all of the sex scandals that have happened in Great Britain. We've had them here as well, but over there, it's, it's been a very different story. I mean, they had the you know recent story about the whole town where all the kids were being brought into that sex crimes ring. They had the, you know, obviously their Catholic church scandal played out very acutely in the British Isles there um, in a way that was much more concentrated and focused than it was here in the U.S., where obviously not everybody is Catholic like it is in huge swaths of the U.K. What did you think about what she had to say about that, about like the crime and the scandal that's going on? It informs what you're willing to to watch on your television. I guess part of it is is what's going on and part of it's also cultural. It does seem, and I, I guess I haven't really been too focused on this as far as television goes, but a lot of British mysteries and suspense, like there's a lot of stuff about pedophiles. Yes. Which, and so that that seems much more so than sort of the equivalent in the U.S. You know, at its best, mystery novels and, and mystery shows are, are sort of shining a light on aspects of culture in that society. And I think like Henning Mankell, who uh, wrote the books with uh, Inspector Wallander in Sweden, like almost every book was sort of tackling some issue that was going on in Sweden at the time. And so I think that's that's also the case with, you know, the, the really good TV mysteries and, and crime dramas. And I'd kind of take issue with you a little bit when you're talking about The Wire. 
in how you thought those characters were sort of a stereotype person with a flaw. And they came off to me a lot more like a British yeah, yeah. show. Yeah, The Wire is not a good example. Because half the actors are actually, actually British. <laughs> yeah, that's why they're so good right. at it, yeah. I, I think about The Wire and I think about the Prime Suspect series with Dame Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting that they're both very gritty, very urban, but that they tackle kind of different they're, they're coming from different places. And I think Prime Suspect is in a good way, but it's coming from a feminist perspective, I think, both in terms of who Jane Tennyson is as a detective and then the mysteries she's investigating often have to do with men exploiting children or women. And then you have The Wire, I, I think is more interested in in societal things, particularly drugs, but then there's also one about human trafficking and and the education system and things like that. One of the things that I think about, though, Toby, is that The Wire, what time that it was on, was a premium cable channel series. And a show like Luther and a show like Hinterland and a show like Broadchurch that explore some of those very same and Happy Valley, those same very, very dark themes with like very real characters. It's just what's on TV in the UK. You know, you, you don't need to be an HBO subscriber to see it. At the time The Wire was on, like you had to be an HBO subscriber right. to be able to see it. And I feel like that there is a line there. What's on our TV, on network TV, primetime, is are very stylized. It's Law and Order, SVU. It's you know CSI. It's you know these the mentalist very glossy crime shows. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I do think there's a difference there in sort of our mainstream crime media. That's almost like a relatively recent thing, and and maybe by recent I mean since like 1995 or something, because like Starsky and Hutch, which I watched in syndication a lot when I was a kid. That was super gritty. You really? Know? That was <laughs> for the time. My memory, and it's been a long time, but there was an episode where they got addicted to heroin and, you know, they were best friends with this pimp and, you know, it was sort How of How long gritty. were they addicted to heroin for? One hour? I, it well, seemed yeah. like it was about 42 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, how long did the angels go undercover in that women's prison in Charlie's Angels? Not long enough for me. <laughs> This would have been a whole whole season's worth. Yeah, yeah. And in the British version of Starsky and Hutch, that cop would have been addicted to heroin for the five years that that series was on, right? Yeah. Remember seeing a rerun of Emergency? You remember oh, the one yeah. with it? Yeah. And, you know, they were at the hospital and they were dealing with a, you know, with a child. And there was this big cutting edge scene where the doctor had to tell the mother that it looked like that perhaps the father was beating the child. And, you know, that is just like an ER that would be a yawn. There'd have to be like some twist to that, right. you know, it just but it was oh, that can't possibly be because we keep breaking, you know, new ground, pushing, you know, the the bar further and further into what's more realistic, into opening a, a, the spotlight on true life problems. So just the idea, oh, my goodness, child abuse. Is that really a thing? Well, it yeah, a, it has a lot to do with what's going on in society. When I was in grade school, there was I'm sure a, that was really gritty for 1976. Well, yeah, when I was in grade school, there was an after school special called There's Something About Amelia, where where the, the daughter, Ted Danson, the Ted Danson one? one, where he is actually uh, molesting his daughter, and Glenn Close plays the mother, and the resolution of that episode is the family goes to therapy, and then they're all okay. Everybody gets reunited. That is so end. weird. But that no. is, it's, it's a great example of just sort of like our American tolerance for darkness is actually, I just think, I think it's historically and currently just a lot less so than overseas. I, I, I still stand behind that. So now, you know, speaking of crime and punishment, I would like to move on to my favorite part of this little podcast, something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. 
The mayor for Frankfurt Village in New York has been accused of stealing 111 street signs from the State Department of Transportation. He wasn't stealing them for himself, you know, to hang in his man cave or something like that. (laughs) He was taking them for use on the streets of the town of which he is the mayor. So Mayor Frank Morocco's day job is working as the foreman at the state sign shop. So instead of having his town apply to the state and pay a fee for the signs... He just took them. These included stop signs, yield signs, do not enter signs. He was the Robin Hood of street signs. All signs that are really oh. ironic after you've been arrested, by the way, for stealing signs. So he faces <laughs> he should have now, seen the signs. <laughs> he faces now a variety of misdemeanor charges. So my question for all of you, and Toby, I'm going to start with you. What is the strangest thing you have ever stolen or, shall we say, borrowed from your day job, from your workplace? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this and I'm like, I can't even think of anything that would have been attractive to steal from any of my jobs. I've got some uh, three ring binders that I can't remember where I got them from. So <laughs> I probably took them. <laughs> Supply I've closet. Got, <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got some, uh, I've got some pens that I probably took. But I, I honestly, I don't have anything that interesting. Frankfurt, by the way, is in my neck of the woods from where I grew up. It's really? Like 45 minutes away. Yeah. Are there plenty of street signs there for you to uh, follow the law with and obey as you're driving around? There's an overabundance. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Laura? What is the strangest thing you ever borrowed or stole from a workplace? Or like Toby, are you like a perfect saint when it comes to uh, stealing office supplies? Well, I mean, I, I can't say I haven't taken some notebooks and some pens. And, I, you know, I, I did take a red pen and an orange highlighter. But... Uh, <laughs> That's about as exciting as it gets. It's mostly just paper and pens, I think. Oh, and I, I think I've also done some color copies at work that were for personal use. All right, Laura. Oh, yeah, yeah. Laura, I've done that too. I, I might yeah. get written up for that. I'm just going to throw it out there, guys. You both have kids. Beginning of the school year when it's time to go school supply shopping and you get that list. Have you ever just like, I don't know, filled a little part of the list in the office supply closet? Am I alone there? I can't say that I have. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the list is so specific that we get. It's like you need like, you know, this type of notebook and this. I mean, it's it's a little bit insane. The people of New Hampshire pay for my office supplies and I would not want to do that to them. to be talking about your current job, but yeah. you're talking about some job you had when you were a teenager. Some amnesty involved here, yeah. yeah I just, didn't have any kids when I was a teenager. That's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, Kevin, what's the strangest thing that you ever borrowed or stole from a workplace? A couple of jobs ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> caveat. To caveat, yes. I, I just it was given and never returned a VGA cable that is about 50 feet long. Sounds like one of our Amazon purchases. Yeah, right. It's, you know, the VGA cable, you know, it's like that you could plug from a a laptop into a projector. Mm -hmm. And so apparently whatever is the longest one that is made in the world, we purchased for some event and I got it and I hung on to it and nobody else wanted it. And when I left the job, I still had it. And so I have a super long VGA cable. So my PowerPoints are fucking awesome. <laughs> well, but that comes in handy when you want to be like corporate guy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then at the, the next jobs, I was like, oh, well, I have this really long cable here. So you don't have to stand there, boss. You can go. We can put it over here. So are you interested to know what the strangest thing I ever stole? or brought Yeah. What is the strangest thing you ever stole? Uh, what did I wear to our wedding, Kevin? That's all I'm going to say about that. And we should probably wrap it up on that note. Ooh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Laura Bricker, you are on the Twitter, right? I am. It's at Laura Bricker and it's L. L-A-R-A. Well, Laura, welcome back. Thank you so much for coming back from your vacation to join our little panel yet again. It was tough to come back, but 
I'm here. And Toby Ball, how can our listeners find you on the Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. Thank you for rejoining us after our cutting you out of our riveting law and order discussion last week. There was a hole in my life last week. (laughs) It has now been filled. I could tell by the amount of email (laughs) I was receiving. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to find you on the Twitter, how can they do that? It's like our whole marriage is a sham. (laughs) You return that dress and some poor woman thought that was hers. Oh, it's like, why does this smell like martini? Um, <laughs> they can find me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. Just look in the blog section. And while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation to support the show, or use that Amazon link to buy stuff you would have bought anyway. And if you love Crime Writers On, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover us and helps keep us on the charts. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. a closet in our basement. Basement. It's like a kill room down here. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. It puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose. We will catch you later. Should I uh, go get the uh, roll of paper towels that we're inevitably going to need because of that glass? Do I need like a sippy cup for the studio? Would you be allowed to take a glass of wine like that into Studio 5? This is why we built a studio in our closet, Kevin. Yeah. If you dumped a can of Coca-Cola into the main board in Control Room 5, would the company pay for things? First of all, I'm not anywhere near the board right now. Second of all, the carpet that it would spill on, while I like it, it's fluffy, it absorbs lots of sound. It was really inexpensive. I think it came from like... So is that wine. That wine's pretty inexpensive. <laughs> pretty cheap. You know what's cheap? Your jokes. They're cheap. You know what's cheap? Your mother. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Hello. Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your this message will be played back to you. Hi, this is Kevin. And this is Rebecca. And we are here naked in the closet. No, we're not. I'm naked from the... If you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. This episode was sponsored by Camp Bow Wow, daycare and boarding for dogs. Everything is included. Large play areas to roam and play with friends, spacious cabins and comfy cots, even live webcams. Camp Bow Wow offers the best care and is the place to go where a dog can be a dog. For locations and more information, visit CampBowWow.com slash crime. And if you think you might like to own a Camp Bow Wow, you can learn about franchise opportunities at CampBowWowFranchise.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.